Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. We're excited to tell you that Pastor Matthew and Pastor Eric are currently investing fruitful time for their brothers at the Arising Church and Refuge City Ministry. Once their time is complete, Pastor Matthew will then go on to visit Submission Ministry. And my father will return to finish out the remaining chapters of Acts with us. Tonight we will be covering Acts 24. And trust me, it's packed. Ready yourself. Our text will include a monumental progression in Adonai's sovereign will for Paul's life. This progression will bring about another witness and apologia, this time in Caesarea, the capital of the Roman power within the region of Judea. The events that we're about to read are still within close proximity to the beating that Paul experienced in Acts 21 at the hands of the riotous mob stirred up by some Jews from Asia. Paul has been brought to Caesarea on the orders of Lysias, the commander of the Antonia, after the discovery of a plot to kill Paul before he would arrive at a meeting with the Sanhedrin council. The high priest planned to request for that purpose. You will, however, see not that the seed that the gospel proclamation is not abated in any way in this chapter. It is the men and women who perceive themselves to be in power, who will be refuted, who will be put on trial, on. and brought under the conviction of the Spirit of Jesus. Amen. So by the end of tonight's chapter, we will experience one of our most significant time lapses since the earlier chapters of Acts. This time lapse will be completely in the hands of Adonai's sovereign will and will be the result of Paul's choice to maintain his conviction while under trial. In doing so, Paul will be fulfilling the will of Adonai and gaining a better resurrection for himself. We're going to read Acts 19.21 again and regain the scope of Paul's conviction. That conviction being that he was bound by the Spirit of God to not only leave a witness in Jerusalem, but also in Rome. So this is Acts 19.21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul has now faithfully completed two witnesses, or apologias, in Jerusalem. One before the crowd of people on the steps of the Antonia, and the other before the council members of the Sanhedrin. Caesarea constitutes a substantial period of his journey to Rome, and his time in Caesarea will include no less than two witnesses before groups consisting of corrupt, high-ranking officials, adulterous royalty, and eventually... Even an incestuous king. This time of patient endurance on the part of the saints will yield informative gleanings into our times under trial. Amen. It is no mistake that our Father has us in the book of Acts during our days of preparation for greater works in Christ Jesus. Our view is going to be aimed at components of the narrative in Acts that were put into motion many, many chapters ago, but are now and just now coming into full focus. This slide is called, Chosen to Carry My Name, Before Gentiles, Children of Israel, and Kings. Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles, and kings, 
and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's journeys up to this point have led him into suffering and fruitful ministry among the Gentiles for the name above all names. You know, Paul's journeys up to this point have also led into him into suffering and fruitful ministry among the children of Israel for the name above all names. Tonight, yeah. you're going to see Paul entering the beginning of what could be called the king phase Ooh. of Paul's life. Yeah. The king phase. The, king phase. the audience of his coming two testimonies and apologias will be increasing in their own worldly power and political clout. Mm. Yeah. We are now going to take a moment to review the apologias recorded in Acts by Luke after this point in our narrative. We have five formal defenses of the faith so far. Acts 4, Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 5, the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 6, Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 22, Paul stood on the steps of Antonia Fortress before the crowd of people. In Acts 23, Paul stood before the council members of the Sanhedrin. And tonight, maybe tonight, oh. we'll see another one, and okay. another one to come, the seventh. Thus far, we have seen incredible displays of a witness under trial from Peter, John, the Twelve Apostles, Stephen, and Paul twice by now. All of these formal defenses of the faith have been in Jerusalem and addressed to a Jewish crowd. Tonight, in our sixth formal defense, you will see that our setting has changed, and while the corrupt Jewish leadership is still pressing the accusation against Paul, the object of Paul's witness and apologia will in fact be the Gentile ruler who is listening to the accusations and Paul's defense. Come on. Despite the change of setting and audience, the message of the gospel will remain identical to that laid down by the son of David and his 12 Jewish apostles. Amen. Namely, the way that the kingdom of God will be established on earth as it was foretold in the law and the prophets. Amen. You will remember this slide from our earliest sessions in Acts. This slide is titled, The Way and the Teacher. Isaiah 30, picking up to 21, says... Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, say he, he, your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. For Paul, he, the teacher, is no longer hidden. His experience on the road to Damascus has irrevocably opened his eyes to the way laid down by Messiah Jesus. You'll see that Paul ardently affirms the nature of his faith as being in full accord with what the prophets foretold. And that his hope is in the resurrection of the dead through Jesus. This declaration affirms that the followers of the way are not divergent, but instead practicing true and pure Judaism. While it is the corrupt leadership who have lost connection with the intention of Adam. Our next slide on Isaiah 35 will remind you of the distinct jab and delineation that the term the followers of the way carries with it. Yeah. Walking the way in Isaiah 35. Strengthen the feeble hands. 
Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. In summary, to say, I am a follower of the way, as opposed to other men who claim to be in right relation with Adonai, but are in fact corrupt, is to say that they are wicked fools. Yeah. Paul's apologia will display the true way of holiness before the Gentile governor, and the resulting conviction, well, it's going to get too close to home for him by the end of the chapter. The declaration of the true way found in Jesus will appear in our text tonight not once, but twice. However, the declaration will come in a manner that you might not have expected. Let's look at our sixth occurrence of the way in the book of Acts. This is in Acts 24-22, which we will read tonight. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Luke's writing will let you know that Felix, the Roman governor in tonight's chapter, has an accurate knowledge of the way. This becomes all the more shocking when you realize what Felix's character and conduct consists of. For now, let's take our next The Way slide. This is the seventh occurrence of The Way, found in Acts 24, 14, which we will read also tonight. But this I confess to you, that according to The Way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So you first saw the slide in our overview session, and tonight you will see Paul declare these words before the Roman official Felix in the hearing of the corrupt Jewish leadership that has traveled to Caesarea to accuse him. Well, this brings us to two important facets of the discussion surrounding Paul's alleged actions. The first is the content of the original accusations against Paul, and that's articulated on this slide. The three initial accusations. The first one was that this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people. And yet we know that Paul writes in passages like Romans 9.3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Their second initial accusation went like this. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our law. Well, you and I both know that couldn't be any farther from the truth. What about Romans 7.12? Paul clearly states, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The third initial accusation, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against this place. Now, Acts 14 is our chapter tonight. Look at verses 16 through 24 is our chapter tonight. Look at verses 16 through 18 and what it has to say about this initial accusation. So I always take pains 
to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. Well, they couldn't see things rightly. Paul <laughs> <laughs> was fully Torah observant as a follower of the way, and at no point in time I committed any of the crimes leveled against him. Furthermore, he was found in the temple in a state of the highest form of voluntary devotion as a Nazarite. You're going to notice that the Jews from Asia, who originally made these accusations, will not be present in tonight's chapter. And these accusations have been modified from their original form in the hopes of inciting Roman concerns against Paul. This is all indicative of an abysmal lack of concern for the truth on the part of Paul's accusers. Instead of them being interested in the truth, they are solely concerned with finding any way to assign to Paul that any way to assign charges to Paul that will stick before the Roman official. Like a bad DA. Yeah. Well, that brings us to our second element surrounding the discussions about Paul. This is Lycia's testimony about him. From Acts 23, verse 26, Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Rescued wow. him. Yeah. yeah rescued. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing. Nothing. Nothing deserving death or imprisonment. In verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, that is Felix, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. So aside from the humorous fact that Lysias mentions nothing about almost scourging a Roman citizen. Yeah. <laughs> it is important to note that Lysias has declared Paul to be innocent of any crime deserving death or imprisonment. This letter was sent with Paul to Caesarea and has already been read by Felix before any of the events in our chapter tonight. This will come into play in several parts of our text, but for now, just keep in mind that there is already an official Roman testimony of Paul's innocence in Felix's possession. It's been some time since we've reacquainted uh, with the city that Paul was sent to by Lysias, so we're going to take a slide from Acts chapter 10. Take a look at the slide with us. Caesarea, the center of outreach. Like most coastal communities in New Testament times, Caesarea had a mixed population. When Pilate was procurator of Judea, he lived in the governor's residence at Caesarea. Philip preached in the city in Acts 8.40, which was also his home, Acts 21, verse 8. And it was here that Peter was sent to minister to the Roman centurion, Cornelius, Acts 10.1, 24, and 11.11. Wow. Herod Agrippa resided in the city and died there. You see those references. Paul passed through Caesarea several times, making it his 
his port of landing on his return from his second and third missionary journeys. At Caesarea, he made his faithful decision to visit Jerusalem, and to that city he returned under guard prior to his appearance before Felix. After two years of imprisonment, Paul made his defense before Festus and Agrippa II in Caesarea, and sailed from there as a prisoner when sent by Festus to Rome on his own appeal. Now Josephus describes the riots that broke out between the Jews and Gentiles in Caesarea, and recorded the atrocities practiced on the Jews under Felix and Florus. In Caesarea, Titus celebrated the birthday of his brother Domitian by sending 2,500 Jews to fight with beasts in the huge amphitheater. It will be relevant to our chapter tonight that there has been an evangelistic effort in Caesarea since at least Acts chapter 8 and the events of Acts 10 saw Cornelius the centurion over the Italian regiment spirit-filled in this city. While we have no way of knowing if Cornelius is still in the city, because much time has passed, his influence would undoubtedly have had an effect on the Roman soldiers stationed there because of his position and status over the Italian regiment. This presence of followers of the way likely would have greatly contributed to a general awareness about the way that would have extended to, latter, uh, to the latter governor, Felix himself. This Felix was known for atrocities committed against the Jewish population and resided at Caesarea. Since we're talking about Felix, this brings us to our last two topics prior to praying and entering into the text. The first being a little background on Felix, the Roman governor, before whom Paul is standing on trial in our chapter tonight. So you'll see our first slide here is entitled, The Inept Governor Felix. According to Tacitus, Felix ruled without fear of punishment from Rome and was very cruel. Antonius Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. Wow. Wow. Felix was unable to control the chaos of the province over which he was appointed. Although he tried to quell Jewish insurrections, Josephus notes that matters progressively deteriorated. Withington says Josephus is quite clear that the net effect of Felix's rule was to add more fuel to the fire. The situation degraded to the point that Jonathan, the high priest who insisted on Felix as Cuminus's replacement, began to undermine Felix's administration. In retribution for Jonathan's outspoken criticism, Felix ordered the Sakari to murder him. After the death of Claudius, Nero became emperor and replaced Felix with Festus. Although the Jews pressed for Felix to be punished, Nero was reticent because of the influence of Paulus, his brother. So Felix was uniquely despised by Roman authors for his ineptitude and the turmoil his rule brought. If you do a little reading about Felix, you will find that he and his brother were born slaves but elevated to rulers by the Roman elite. And this fact is made reference to in some of the refrains about his rulership. Romans in general as a people could accept a cruel man if, big if, he maintained order, prosperity, and a steady flow of taxes going back to Rome. Felix, however, accomplished none of the above. His violence and petty grievances inspired riots, general civil unrest, 
and even embolden groups of assassins called Sakari, particularly in his last two years of office. One of his crowning achievements while in office, and I say that sarcastically, was to have the man who helped him gain office murdered. Normally a man of this pathetic ineptitude would have been immediately removed and punished by Rome. But Felix had one thing in his favor, his brother. Paulus was well connected in the Roman court and used this influence to insulate his brother from the evaluation and subsequent penalty that would normally accompany the type of mismanagement that Felix exhibited. For these reasons and more, Felix was hated by Roman authors as well as the Jewish population. To draw a modern parallel that many of you would be familiar with, Felix is like an owner's son who's a plague on the whole company but is unlikely to ever experience the consequence of his actions because of his familial relationships. Man, that's bad. But that's not all. Let's take a look at this next slide. The manipulative Governor Felix. Tacitus in his history declares that during his governorship in Judea, he indulged in all kinds of cruelty and lust, exercising regal power with the disposition of a slave. And in his annals, he represented Felix as considering himself licensed to commit any crime, relying on the influence that he possessed at court. While in office, he became enamored of Drusilla, a daughter of King Herod Agrippa, who was married to Azizus, king of Emesa. Uh And through the influence of Simon, a magician, prevailed upon her to consent to a union with him. With this adulteress, Felix was seated when Paul reasoned before him in Acts 24 that we will read tonight. Although it violated normal Roman policy for a governor to marry a woman from his province, Felix had much power as long as his brother Paulus remained in favor in Rome. In addition to Felix's general ineptitude at his actual job, which is the managing the affairs of Judea, Felix was also known for quite successfully manipulating circumstances to get what he wanted for himself. This is put on full display when you realize that he sent a sorcerer named Simon from Cyprus to another man's wife in the successful effort to get her to leave her husband and marry him. This marriage was not only morally corrupt, but was against Roman policy. However, Felix experienced no consequence thanks to Big Brother Paulus. We will get into more background on Drusilla later on, but for now, keep in mind that Felix thinks nothing of violating Roman law to get what he wants, and extorting a man like Paul for a bribe would be a relatively minor note on his infamous track record. Well, that brings us to our final topic before praying and entering into our text. This topic is Paul himself. You already know that Paul is in a special state of devotion that had been ongoing for years now. So outwardly, Paul's appearance would have looked wild and a bit like a vagrant. He was, however, a representative of Adonai's heavenly priesthood before the Gentiles, the children of Israel, and even kings in this new phase of his life. We're gonna reread Acts 21 to gain a little more context about Paul's outward appearance here. Acts 21.30 Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him 
out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The mob here had physically dragged Paul out of the temple and was allowed to beat him with the intention to kill him, all the way up to the point where Lysias finally arrived and put a stop to the violence. You're going to find out in our text tonight that the trial of Acts 24 is taking place no more than 12 days since this beating occurred, and it could quite possibly be less than 12. Oh, yeah. So we hope that you have not had the misfortune of having someone beat you with the intention to kill you. However, if you did have that experience, you would know that the damage would not be gone in the 7 to 14 day mark. No, you're just looking right now. Yeah. It would actually look significantly worse as the healing process turned every bruise from black and blue into a distinct yellow then an orange and a brownish color. But this is, this, is, this is what we're talking about. This is the, the transition of what Paul's appearance should have looked like. You go from pinkish to bluish to greenish to yellowish to brownish. And as you will see in our text tonight, we're probably around the 7 to 10 day mark from the bruise. So as you're considering Paul's appearance in this apologia, remember that he was not beaten by one or two men. He was beaten by an entire mob at once for the name of Jesus, meaning he's probably covered in severe bruising from head to toe. In Galatians 6.17, Paul wrote, From now on, let no one accuse me or cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Our point in quoting from Galatians 6 is not to indicate what the epistle, uh, when the epistle was written, but instead to give you a representative example of what it caused for Paul to bear up under trial as a faithful witness. All of these factors make the events of tonight that much more inspiring as we strive to be faithful witnesses under trial as well. Well, saints, we've come to that place where we're going to pray and then read the text. But I would like Daniel Cho, the Chosen, to stand up and pray for us. Come on, yeah. Yeah. And after Pastor reads the chapter, Pastor Parsons will pick up. to be a troublemaker, 
stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it is the one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, commander, uh, the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So anytime you open up your Bible, you are welcome, welcoming an interaction with the living God. As we jump into our text tonight, full disclaimer, it's going to be incredible and insightful for you. But as we read, I want you to consider that Paul had to go through all the beatings, all the trials. Luke had to record and write everything down so that you could be taught. So what a privilege to be able to teach it. And what a privilege to be able to receive it. Yes. Amen. Amen. Let's Amen. jump into verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought, with their, brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Peter. We have endured a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent feelers. We acknowledge this profound, this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us read. Okay, so as we engage with this first opening salvo of verses, you should notice a few things that set the stage for the rest of the chapters. The high priest, Ananias, is the one driving this continued pursuit of Paul, along with some others, 
who came with him. This is the same man who struck Paul in the face in the last chapter for merely saying that he had a clean conscience. This bitter enmity toward Paul is driven by the hatred of Paul's testimony of the resurrection in Jesus, as Paul will make clear in the coming verses. In the effort to see Paul condemned, a lawyer in some translations or a spokesman in others has been brought in to help make the case in a way that Rome will find agreeable to their own interest in keeping peace and stability. Little is known of this spokesman other than his name is not Hebrew and is thought to mean third, or in some dictionaries, thirdlet. Thirdlet. Which we kind of find humorous. So in all likelihood, this thirdlet is probably a Jew with a diaspora education and knowledge of Roman laws. The modification of the accusers will bear that possibility out in the coming verses. You should notice that Tertullus' initial address to Felix is pure fabrication and is evidence of the character of a sycophant. The Jewish population hated Felix for obvious reasons and the statements we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere, and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Profound gratitude. Those statements are about as disingenuous as if we were to stand up and praise the mental aptitude and dexterity of President Biden's speaking ability. Let's get verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we see him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we are bringing against him. So we're going to examine Tertullus' derogatory term for Paul as a troublemaker. And then we're going to examine each of his three following accusations individually. So let's look at this term, troublemaker. Found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader. Four accusations of Paul. So the term troublemaker means a pest, a plague, pestilence. It was a term used by current authors of a very bad or profligate man. He did not say he was a pestilent fellow, but he was pestilence itself. So this Greek phrase, a pestilent fellow, literally a pestilence, as we say, a pest, a plague, or a nuisance, like the Latin term pestis, where that originates, is of frequent use in the LXX. You can find it in 1 Samuel 2.12, 10.27, and 25.25. And in those chapters, it's translated as sons of Belial, or Belial. And elsewhere, as the rendering of other Hebrew words. It is occasionally used also in this sense by classical writers. So the term that Tertullus chose in Greek does mean a troublemaker in the sense that it is often used to describe evil men who stir up riots, sedition, or disobedience to the law. However, in the semantic drift of our age, we must describe a mischievous, mischievous child as a troublemaker, meaning nothing more than he causes problems at times. In your understanding, 
you should view Tertullus as calling Paul's very person a plague that spreads and infects many. Furthermore, the LXX uses the same word when Abigail is describing Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, 25. Oh my. The Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word for plague in 1 Samuel 25, 25 is Belial, meaning a son of wickedness or someone who is so worthless because of their evil deeds as to be beyond salvation. Wow. Now that you have Tertullus' opening remark about Paul in mind, we're going to go over the accusations that are made against him. We're going to start with accusation number one, which is, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Inciting people to riot against Rome was a term called maestas, which means treason. It's Rome treating sedition, stirring unrest, Rome treated sedition or stirring unrest as one of the very worst crimes that you could commit. During his reign over Judea, Felix had repeatedly crucified leaders of various uprisings and killed many of their followers for disturbing the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Tertullus' endeavor, therefore, as supported by the high priest and the Jewish elders with him, was to put Paul on the same level as these brigands, with the hope that, in his insensitivity to the issues, Felix would act in his usual manner, simply on the basis of their testimony. As in Jesus' trial before Pilate, their accusations were framed mainly in terms of political sedition, though all along their grievance was principally religious. So the accusations begin with framing Paul as a treasonous rebel who's working to subvert Rome's interest all over the world. If this charge were believed and proved, this would certainly result in the death penalty. While the intent and implications of the charge are malicious and false, it is, however, certainly true that Paul has turned much of his known world upside down through the proclamation of the gospel. It is not universally true of every city that Paul went to with his team, but it is true in many cities that a riot was indeed formed because of a satanic hatred of unbelievers. It is not true that in any city Paul was stirring up riots against Roman rule. All right. Let's move to our next accusation, accusation number two. That is, he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. The second charge was also concerned with the government because Tertullus made it appear that Christianity was divorced from the Jewish religion. That is, Rome permitted Judaism as a religio licita, a legal religion, but it would not tolerate any new religions. So by describing Christianity as a sect or as a hated sales, a faction, a party, a school, of, coming from heresy of the Nazarenes, the attorney made Paul's faith appear to be cultic and bizarre. It is remarkable that despite Paul's constant actions and statements to the contrary, many modern scholars agree with Tertullus' satanic accusation that the followers of the way were divorced from Judaism. And as is now some other divergent, divergent religion. 
Paul is an example of the many followers of the way in the first century that lived in perfect observance of the Tanakh, as well as the teachings of Jesus, Amen. who is the Tanakh made flesh. Right. Yeah. Paul is an example of what true and pure Judaism has always been, yeah. a walk of trust grounded obedience in Adonai. Yeah. Once again, the intent and implications of the charge are malicious and false. It is, however, certainly true that Paul is a ringleader of the group associated with the Netzer. Yeah. Hey, Amen. Sure. Let's go to our next accusation. Accusation number three. He even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. Desecrating the temple also had political overtones because the Romans had given the Jews permission to execute any Gentile who went inside the barrier of the temple. At this point, Tertullus modified the original charge made in 2128. There, Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile, Trophimus the Ephesian, into the temple courts. Here, Paul is said to have attempted desecration. You catch the difference? Yeah. The truth was severely damaged in the clause, so we seized him. The implication being they took Paul to arrest him. Tertullus could accuse Paul only of trying to desecrate the temple because no witness had apprehended a Gentile with him in the temple. If one's opponent in court were known to be a persuasive speaker, it was also common to warn about his crafty speaking ability and character defamation, often freely invented, was a major part of winning ancient lawsuits. So the first two accusations were twisted truths. The last accusation is probably the most serious because they are claiming to be witnesses to an event that never actually happened. If this egregious lie were to be acted upon, it would certainly mean death for Paul. However, say however, however, Paul's life is bound to the process of Adonai, and he is immortal until his work is complete. No amount of character defamation can change the outcome that Adonai has destined for Paul. Thanks in our own lives, this lesson must be adopted in our actions and our thoughts. Real men of God have always experienced slanderous accusations and character defamation of various types. We're exhorted throughout the word to be aware of the enemy's schemes and give no reason for accusation in our conduct and to not be surprised when we face fiery trials. We're going to take one passage as a representative example for now. This is 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, yes. while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Evil people and imposters are only going to continue to increase Every day as we draw nearer and nearer to the day of the Lord. We, in this room, we must resolve ourselves to not be dissuaded in our testimony in the slightest. Amen. Continuing in what we have learned. Every real son of God will face these kinds of demonic deceptions that seek to corrupt the weak in heart. We, however, are warned beforehand 
so that we can discipline ourselves to adhere to the scriptures. The scriptures that are able to save us and our hearers. Man, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now we're going to take a slide summarizing the Acts 21 accusations and the ones we just covered in Acts 24. Then we will compare another threefold accusation. So let's take a look at the three initial accusations against Paul. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our law. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against this place. Compare that to the three latter accusations. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, a pestilence, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. It's not difficult to see the way that these accusations shifted based upon what the accusers thought might be most effective in a given setting. These men likely held many justifications as to why their slander was for the greater good in the same way that Caiaphas did before them. Whether they were aware of it or not, these accusations were birthed from a satanically motivated desire that sought to snuff out the witness of Christ that was in Paul. The pattern of threefold satanic accusations did not begin with Paul and can be clearly seen in Luke's other scroll. So with that in mind, we're going to read Luke 23. This is Luke 23 from Luke's first scroll. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So the three accusations against Jesus were, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and finally saying that he himself was a king. In Jesus and later in Paul's case, the accusations were largely based on the twisting of truths that were designed to present both parties in opposition to the Roman government. In our day, the twisting of truth that seeks to present genuine believers who hold to convictions as enemies of the state, well, this is on the rise. We've got to learn from the example of deeds and teachings that we have in both of Luke's scrolls and resolve ourselves not to bend the knee while conducting ourselves in a manner that gives no place for accusation to find rest. That's a good word. Paul will now go on to speak to Felix about the truth of his purpose and activities. You're going to see the way it both refutes the claims of the corrupt leadership and presents to Felix the real hope that lies in the gospel. Hallelujah. Verse 9. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
So you may remember that since Acts 19.21, Paul has been on a journey of constant activity in the effort to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost, if possible. Once reaching Jerusalem, Paul had a brief few days of respite and then has been in constant movement, trial, and testimony. Since Acts 21.30, Paul has been in constant suspense and in poor physical condition all the way through chapter 22 and up to this point tonight. It is incredible to consider that all the events that have occurred since Paul reached Jerusalem up to this present time have occurred in only 12 days. That's a lot. That's amazing. This phase of life poses its own challenges, but by the end of the chapter there will be a shift that poses a different set of challenges for Paul. So a period of 12 days in the ancient world devoid of communication tools like cell phones or social media, it's not a great deal of time to arrange riots yeah. <laughs> or any other sort of civil disturbances right. in a city that you have not visited in years. Mm-hmm. Paul's point in citing the 12 days is to emphasize that he came to Jerusalem to worship Adonai and not for any other purpose. <coughs> However, much of the 12 days has been filled with activities, activities. In, including a beating. That were not of his own volition. Paul is plainly stating to Felix his purpose in being in Jerusalem, that his purpose in being in Jerusalem is out of pure devotion and a desire for Adonai, not for any other malicious reason. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple, or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue, or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. So Paul's statement makes reference to the initial accusations and the latter accusations. He was not found with a Gentile in the temple, and he was in the process of making offerings to God in accordance with his and the four other men's Nazarite vows. The declaration that they cannot prove to you the charges they are making now is evidence of conduct that cannot be opposed. Much like Jesus in John 18, Paul knows that there are no witnesses of transgression while he was at the temple because he conducted himself in a holy and Torah-adherent manner. We're going to take a moment to review two passages on the subject of conduct that gives no room for anyone to malign the way, beginning with Peter's writings and then moving to Paul's writings. Oh man, this is good. It's exciting. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct... Among the Gentiles, honorable. Amen. So that when, when, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor yeah. as supreme wow. or to governors oh, yeah. as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Oh, come on. By doing good. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Yeah. So Peter's instructions do not start out with the words, if they speak out against you, but rather, when they speak out against you. This is because everyone who 
wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter goes on to tell us that by doing good, we will silence the talk of ignorant and foolish people. In our day of media wars and endless verbal sparring that honestly produces no effective yield, we would do well to note that both Paul and Peter's example implore us to rely on a demonstration of good works to silence the opposition rather than words. That's good. Now, while this is paramountly true, it's not to say that your tongue and what speech comes out of your mouth is not an important factor. James, the brother of Jesus, is quite clear in his writing that we must keep a tight rein on our speech, whether in speaking out or in remaining patiently silent. The point is that we have deeds in the image of Christ, and then when we do speak, it is representative of the teachings of Christ. By way of context, you guys should know that the emperor that Peter is likely referring to is a man named Nero. Honor him. Nero, one of the most malevolent rulers to ever grace the seat of Roman rule. Or Greece. Or Greece that seat. <laughs> Nero also happens to be the emperor that Paul is on his way to stand before. This stands as a sharp contrast to the trivial things that tend to break our commitment to doing good in the face of evil. We all must rise to the same standard under trial that we see Paul exemplifying in this king phase of his life within our text tonight. Amen. All right. Titus 2, verse 6. Hey, do we have any young men in this place? Amen. Listen up. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And if you're teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. us. We have much to garner tonight from Paul's example and the work of Adonai's sovereignty, so we cannot linger long. It is worth you considering that Paul says here late in his life that young men, not old men, but even those who are young, are to be a model in all respects. This is so that our opponents may have nothing evil to say about us collectively and plurally. The expectations of biblical Christianity are much higher for young men than our culture has been willing to accept. That's true. We will set the culture of our community in accordance with the standards set forth by the word. So on a last note, before we move on, I want you to lean in and hear what we're trying to convey. If this is true of what young men should be expected to do, how much more the seasoned crowd? Does your life in all respects, all respects, set forth a model of good works? Or are there areas of your life that if put on trial would actually put us all to shame? Our chapter arrangement was set forth by the sovereign will of God so that we could get our house in order through applying the call to action that is the book of Acts. Know this for certain. Our times of trial are not behind us. Say not behind us. Not Not behind us. us. What we have experienced so far are faith builders. Come on. There's much more ahead and we must be ready because our conduct affects all of us. Yeah, that's you hear us on that? 
Melchizedek affects all of us as well as the image of our king. That's it. Thank God for faithful men like Paul, yeah. who laid down an example of true and biblical faith of Israel as a follower of the way for all of us to emulate. Amen. Let's take verse 14. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Come on now. What we understand these two verses may seem to be minor in the minds of some. They are packed with meaning. Yeah. And we're going to cover the content as our time allotment allows. Paul has just shared a summary of his and all real faith by stringing three concepts together. We will only be able to go over a few summary passages explaining what Paul is saying, and we cannot take the time to review an exhaustive list if we are to finish on time tonight. That's true. With that in mind, it is important that you gird up the loins of your mind. Yeah. yeah. Effective immediately. Oh, yeah. Now is not the time for a bathroom or coffee break. No. Because the average pastor cannot articulate on his own most of the subject matter that we are about to cover. We will be covering the content of these verses in three parts. The first being, I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Our second will be, I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And lastly, our third, I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Amen. All three of these testimonies on the part of Paul will not only soundly refute the idea that he's divergent from Judaism, they will also help you grow in your understanding of the faith that you have come to hold. Amen. So as we begin, remember that in keeping with the king phase of Paul's life, this is being addressed to Felix, a Roman governor, and it is Paul's formal defense of his faith. Yeah, well, y'all ready? Yeah. yeah. Oh, let's begin with, with Paul's first testimony. He said, I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. Exodus is where we will pick up because it is the foundation stone upon which this whole concept stems. This is Exodus 3.12. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Yeah. yeah. We noted together that the followers of the way were first referred to as the church or ecclesia in Acts 5.11, meaning the ones called out of religious wickedness into freedom in Christ. Yeah. This is because the way is intrinsically linked with the Exodus event, and all the later writings of the prophets had this original concept in mind. Israel was called out of darkness, slavery, and sin, so that they could worship Adonai. That was the purpose, so they could worship Adonai. The freedom to worship Adonai in purity is the central point of contention throughout the interactions with Pharaoh. The ultimate conclusion is that this freedom to worship cannot be found under Pharaoh's dominion. 
so the people must be brought out. However, Pharaoh would not permit this. So the way for the people to leave Egypt and enter the promised land had to be made. This was accomplished by the sending of Moses and Aaron, who performed great signs and wonders as well as the direct leading of the Spirit in the image of fire by night and cloud by day. The concept of worshiping as a follower of the way is directly tied to the Exodus in the mind of every Jew because a deliverer had to be sent to show them the way out of bondage to death so that they could worship Adonai. After leaving Egypt, the Spirit of God then subsequently led them on their journey to the promised land so that they could worship Adonai where he had ordained them to live. The Exodus event is a foreshadowing of many things that will come later in Israel's history, like the return from the Babylonian exile, as well as a return from the nations, still yet to come, where all of Israel will worship Adonai as followers of the way. The Exodus event also foreshadowed the coming of Christ. Jesus was a prophet like Moses, and he was sent to deliver the people from slavery. This time, not from physical slavery, but slavery to sin and a corrupt religious structure. This prophet like Moses performed great signs and wonders and even gave his own life to open the way for his people to worship Adonai in spirit and in truth. The subsequent infilling with the spirit of Jesus is also analogous to the ongoing leading of the fire by night and the cloud by day. Amen. Tonight, we will not take time to examine Isaiah 35 in depth, but if you review it on your own time, you will find that it bears the same marks as the Exodus event. For now, we will just revisit our slide that summarizes the content. Walking the way in Isaiah 35. I'm going to read it and you're going to listen like it's the first time you've listened to it. All right, get it. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Hallelujah. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They actually will enter Zion with singing. So Isaiah built upon this original foundation that the Torah laid out. The way is called the way of holiness, and those on it are separated from wicked fools and all corruption, so that they can actually worship God in purity. Hallelujah. What you should take from Paul's statement when he said, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect, is the connection of multiple themes that convey the concept of being delivered from slavery to sin and a religious corruption to the purpose of worshiping Adonai in purity and spirit and truth. Another way to state that concept would be, I worship God as one who has been called out of slavery to sin and a corrupt religious system, just like our fathers were called out of Egypt, and called into the way of Adonai. The first testimony on the part of Paul affirms that his worship is in accordance with the biblical and truly orthodox faith of Israel, which these men are calling a sect 
or a divergent branch. The statement also gives the implication that his accusers are like Pharaoh in the Exodus, or wicked fools on Isaiah 35. In summary, Paul is stating that he worships in the way that men of faith always have. And it is not him who is divergent, but rather his accusers. So let's reread verse 14 so we can take our next testimony from Paul. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. Paul's next statement on the surface is an affirmation that he embraces the full counsel of God's word, but it is also much more. Luke's first scroll clearly connects belief in Jesus as the Messiah to belief and understanding of the scriptures. Mm. So let's read that in chapter 24. This is Luke 24, picking up in 25. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe, to believe. believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all, say all, all, all the scriptures concerning himself. In this passage and in many others, Jesus connects a lack of belief in him to a lack of belief in all the scriptures. Think about that. The converse is certainly also true. Genuine belief in the whole counsel of Adonai's word is belief in Jesus. After all, Jesus is the word made flesh as outlined in John's gospel. Before Felix, Paul is both affirming his adherence to the whole counsel of God's word and that his belief in Jesus stems from the whole counsel of God's word. As true as those statements are, You probably could have gotten that from a Beth Moore Bible study. Probably not. Probably not. In any case, Paul's implication in stating his beliefs, his belief in all that agrees with the law and the prophets, it goes much deeper. Are you awake? Yes! You alive? Yes! Look, as a team, we're going to pick up our energy and our pace. I'm asking you, rouse yourself. Come with us. Did you know that Jesus said believing the scriptures will cause you to believe in him? Do you understand? Was that new to anyone in this room? Well, that's a Bethmore Bible study compared to where we're going. So wake up. Let's go to Genesis 15. Because it is the foundation stone upon which this whole concept of belief in Jesus as promised in the word stems. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things... The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar, or Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Wow. And he believed 
the Lord. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 begins with the word of God appearing to Abraham. You think about that deeply enough. You may find a remez immediately about Jesus. However, our point is that the first occurrence of stated belief in this manner is found in Father Abraham. He was childless, and his body was as good as dead. But he believed the word of the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the book of Romans was likely written somewhere between the events of Acts 19 in Ephesus and Paul's arrival in Jerusalem in Acts 21, as in the thing he was writing on his way to Jerusalem. The entirety of the fourth chapter is dedicated to the subject of Abraham's belief in the word of God, crediting him with righteousness. We'll not take the time to survey the whole chapter, but we'll read verses 23 through 25 as a representative example of what Paul has in mind when he says, I believe the word. Come on, this is Romans 4, 23. Let's go. Most people can say that Paul believed in Jesus, but we are teaching you why Paul believed in Jesus. That's good. Verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him. Who's him? Abraham. Abraham. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, Amen. who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The concept is that Abraham recognized that he was incapable of producing life on his own and that his body was as good as dead, but he believed the word of the Lord anyway, trusting that Adonai had the power to produce life where he did not. That was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 and the fourth chapter of Paul's writing to Rome were on his mind as he approached Jerusalem. Paul's stated route in Acts 19.21 was to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome, the city that he just sent the epistle of the Romans to. Paul's stated belief in the word of God before Felix is also a statement about his justification and righteousness before God just like his father Abraham. So some may ask in his formal defense of the faith, why did he say, I believe in Jesus? He did. You just missed him. Yeah. Somebody say, furthermore. Furthermore. Yeah, we got more on this topic. The passage in Genesis goes on to depict a covenant that foreshadows Messiah in the strongest of ways, and it demonstrates the belief that Paul held in agreement with Abraham's. Because we don't have the time to read the whole verse range, no, we don't. we're going to throw a slide up for you that summarizes the event so that you can see it. It's the Genesis 15 covenant on a slide. Verse 7, and he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, 
dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, he was sleeping, right? Yes. Okay. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Admittedly, this is a lot for many of you to take in. But we have a varied audience that is able to grow together in our understanding. So the first primary example of a man's belief in the word of God resulted in credited righteousness as well as a covenant that was made by God himself. In the ancient world, covenants were often made by the two parties of the covenant walking through the severed halves of animals vowing that if either party violated their end of the arrangement, they would be personally cut in half, just like the animals. In the case of Genesis 15, Abraham was asleep, and Adonai is the only one who walked through these halved animals, meaning that Adonai would bring about his promises to Abraham, even if and when Abraham failed to keep up his end of the arrangement. That's good. The second testimony on the part of Paul, I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, does affirm that Paul embraces the full counsel of God's word, but it's so much more than that, guys. In summary, Paul is stating that he has the same belief in the word of God that Father Abraham had, which resulted in credited righteousness and a covenant from God. A covenant that God would be faithful to bring to its ultimate completion, even in man's inadequacy. Hallelujah. We're going to read verses 14 through 15 again to regain our context and momentum. Let's go. However, as we do, in keeping, remember that in keeping with Paul's king face, this, what Paul is saying has been addressed to Felix, a Roman governor. And this is Paul's formal defense of his faith. Yeah. Verse 14. However... I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe in everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Well, I have the same hope. This last testimony of Paul's of faith in Paul's formal debate, I mean defense, is unfortunately understood by a very small percentage of believers today. That's true. It is common for a reasonably... For reasonably literate Christians to be aware that a resurrection is coming, but most of them have no idea that there will be two resurrections. We're going to take as, as a concise of a spiritual path as possible to outline what Paul's view of eschatology was so that we can understand his formal testimony of faith as stated as, I have the same hope in God as this man that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Come on. You will want to maintain your attention so that you do not miss a building block along the way. Come on. Beginning where all things are founded, the Torah. Torah. Genesis 2, picking up in 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Holy. Say holy. Holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work. 
creation. The creation itself is displayed to us in the beginning as a seven-day or week-long process with the last day being a time of completion, yeah. perfection, and rest. This concept of measuring the completion of a process in a seven-day format is reinforced throughout the Torah. Every week, there would be six days of work and then a seventh day of completion, perfection, Hallelujah. and rest. Furthermore, Israel was told by Adonai to number nearly everything by the number of Sabbaths all the way up to Sabbaths of years. When you combine this reinforcement throughout the word with God's affinity for the number seven as displayed, especially in divine and eschatological depictions, the concept of a week of creation as we know it now becomes apparent. It is from this framework outlined in Genesis and other passages that many rabbis and church fathers derive the idea that time between that time between Adam's fall in the garden and our ultimate restoration of all things could also be numbered by seven. Meaning six days of labor and on the seventh a special time of completion, perfection, and rest. Just make sure these concepts are building. The days of creation were seven. The seventh was specially holy in God's sight. This sets a pattern for the rest of the Tanakh that reinforces this again and again. We're now going to look at Peter's commentary with this seven-day format in mind. Because this seven-day format is God's redemptive plan for all creation. Yeah. Not just in the primordial past, but in the future. Second yeah. Peter 3.3 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days... You get our context here? We're not speaking about this moment. We're speaking about the last days. Scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. And the earth was formed out of the water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Peter wants you to know this. He wants you to understand this. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. In a thousand years, or like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter makes the point that all the way up to the last days, men will mock God, saying, Where is this coming? And everything goes on as it has since the creation. But that despite this mocking, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Yeah, Peter's point is that in your view of Adonai's divine plan for the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous, you must understand that one day is equal to a thousand years. Meaning, God has a set plan from the beginning that allows time for men to repent and work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, that's good. Saints, if a day is a thousand years for the Lord, what would a week be for the Lord. 7, That's right. 7,000 years is a week for him. And there's a 7,000 year redemptive plan. 
You see, Peter is drawing from Psalm 90 that also references creation and then declares the fact that for God, a thousand years is like one day of the week. Furthermore, the psalmist in verse 12 asks for something specific. It's found in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days. Teach us that we may get a heart of wisdom. The cry of the psalmist and Peter is that we would be able to number our days right because it affects our heart. What is presented by Peter and the psalmist is that men should be able to recognize that the plan of God is unfolding in a 7,000 year week and know for certain that the time of judgment of the wicked and redemption of the righteous is coming. So let's take a look at that on a slide. Come on. So here's our slide. We want to direct you to these red arrows. There are, of course, seven of them delineating 1,000 to 7,000 years. This is how the rabbis have traditionally viewed the redemptive plan of Adonai. You can see that there are six days for work to be done, and then a seventh when completion, perfection, and rest will be ushered in just as Genesis forecasted. Look at the bottom of the screen with us. We'll start on the left side. Yemei Tohu period. These are the days before the law, or the days of chaos. The Yomot Torah period are the days of the law, or the days of life and good. The Yemei Mashiach period are the days of Messiah's expected coming. You see how that matches up? Yeah. And then the Akarit Hayamim period are the end days or last days. This period is also known as Jacob's trouble or the period of tribulation. The Mahut period are the days of Messiah's royal reign or the millennium, meaning the last 1,000 year period. This is where our emphasis will be for our subject matter tonight. This brings us to Daniel's prediction of a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. This is from Daniel 12, starting in verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has, a, who, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as, never has, such as never has been since was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Wow. So Daniel clearly lets us know that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Yeah. yeah. This is, however, a summary of the last day. Somebody said last day. Last, last day. day. Which is a thousand years right. of Adonai's redemptive plan. The righteous, or those written in the book, will be raised at the beginning of the last day or the thousand year period. Right. But the wicked will not be raised until the end of the last day or the thousand year period. We will show you this clearly in a few passages and then put Paul's formal testimony before Felix together for you. We're going to pick up in Revelation 20, which describes the events of the beginning of the last day and the end of the last day, a day being a thousand years. Revelation 20, picking up in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, 
that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from the deceiving, from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So this is the commencement of what was referred to as the Malchut period on our slide for the thousand year day where Jesus has returned and is putting every enemy under his foot. Come on. Notice that Satan is bound or subdued for this time period, but is not fully judged until the end, say end, end, end of the thousand year period. The text is going to go on to explain who will be raised to life at the commencement of the thousand year period or last day of the redemptive plan. So as I go to verse four, remember, Nathan just told you, Revelation 20 is about the last day, that last thousand year period. We're telling you what is happening in year one right now. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Meaning they rise and then are with him through the whole last day. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Oh my. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. It is the righteous who are blessed and rise in the first resurrection to <laughs> reign with Messiah for a thousand years, yeah. putting everything underfoot. You've already seen that Satan was bound for a thousand years in anticipation of an ultimate and final judgment at the end of that time period. The wicked, they face the same fate. They are left in the grave until the time of the final judgment known as the second resurrection, which is at the end of the thousand years. They will then be raised at the end of the thousand year day for the purpose of being judged. So we're now going to move forward to verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Notice that God's people are already with him in the city that he loves when the enemies of God march out. This is because they were already raised at the beginning of the thousand-year day. Are you guys getting it? Yeah. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released only to be destroyed alongside all those who stand with him. The lake of burning sulfur is the ultimate judgment that Messiah has been waiting a thousand years or a day of his plan to cast Satan into. And now we have verse 11. Verse 11. He's 
starts with then. Then. Then when? At the end of the thousand years. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. You should remember Daniel. Yeah. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice the conspicuous lack of reference to anyone righteous being raised at this point. This is because judgment begins with the house of God at the beginning of the 1,000 years. Yes. The second resurrection is not a resurrection that you want to take a part in. That's it is a racing for the purpose of judgment and the fitting of an immortal body that will live forever in the lake of fire along with Satanás. Many people misunderstand passages like Matthew 25 that depict the separation of the sheep and goats because they fail to recognize the context of the judgment that occurs within the house or flock of God. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now we don't have the liberty to cover Matthew 25 or 1 Peter 4 in any depth at this time. We wanted to, but we don't. But you're students of the word and can look into that yourselves, and we trust that God will give you insight. The major reason that genuine students of the word do not understand what Paul stated in his formal defense before Felix, so that he said so plainly, are as follows. These students, they are unaware that there is a judgment within the house or flock of God at the beginning of the thousand-year day. They are aware, but do not want there to be a judgment within the house of God. They prefer that it wasn't true. Yeah. They are confused by common phrases like judgment day, or the depictions in the scripture that seem to be happening in one day. There is a singular day of judgment for the righteous and the wicked, but it is a day of the Lord. Meaning, all judgment will be complete at the end of the 1,000 years, reckoned by God as one day. Starting with the righteous in the beginning of the day, and at the end of the 1,000 years, the wicked. We have a slide that will help you visualize this. So while you're looking at the slide, I want to make sure you all catch this. How many times have you heard the phrase, judgment day, judgment day, judgment day, movies, preachers, TV? It is a day of judgment, but to God, a thousand years is a day. It's reckoned by his calendar, not yours. So you can see on our slide here, the third testimony on the part of Paul. I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous, beginning of the thousand, and the wicked, is laying out the eschatological plan of God in his testimony. In summary, Paul is stating that his hope in is in the return of Messiah, 
who will raise the righteous to reign with him. That's his hope at the beginning of the thousand years. And who will raise the wicked for destruction at the end of the thousand years. Now, imagine this. This would carry with it the implication that he's waiting for his personal salvation, but everyone hearing him, including Felix and the accusers, should be warned because the Lord will hold them accountable for their actions, yeah. and there's a resurrection waiting them that is not unto life and reigning with Christ. Yeah. You guys know we live in a time when it seems the chief goal of all teaching is to dumb things down into neat little creeds that have been stripped of all real practical meaning. That's yeah. true. We would like to show you what we call the real Apostles' Creed. Oh, I love this. Yeah. Paul's Creed. Worship. Believe. Hope. I worship God as one who has been called out of slavery to sin and a corrupt religious system. Just like our fathers were called out of Egypt and into the way of Adonai. I believe in the word of God just as Father Abraham did. This has resulted in credited righteousness and a covenant from God. A covenant that God will be faithful to bring to in its ultimate completion even in man's inadequacy. I have hope in the return of Messiah, who will raise the righteous to reign with him at the beginning of the thousand years, and who will raise the wicked for destruction at the end of the thousand years. You see, worship, belief, and hope were Paul's stated creed, and his actions proved that out. Remembering worship, belief, and hope will be of great benefit to you, provided that you engage in the word with the concepts those three words represent. On a last note, before we pick up a brisk pace, it should be noted that three accusations were leveled against Paul, and this was his three-part testimony oh, before Felix. Come on. come on, that's good, isn't it? That's yeah. good. Verse 16. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any, in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. While you guys are considering Paul's description of events, remember that Felix already has Lysias' letter that confirms Paul's innocence. Yeah. There are several things in Paul's description of events that should stand out to you. First, Paul's whole purpose for being in Jerusalem was to do good, bringing gifts to the poor, and presenting offerings in association with his vow, which was a vow that... Paul can still clearly be seen to be under right here. Yeah. Secondly, Paul's statement that the Jews from Asia ought to be here in the trial, well, it's true on multiple levels. Both the Torah and Roman law required that the actual eyewitnesses who made the accusations of a crime come forward to testify. You guys can read about that in Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21, as well as Acts 25, Verse 16. So Paul is illustrating that this is not a real trial, as evidenced by the lack of a single first-hand witness 
but it's instead about one central issue. Nobody who saw anything is there. No. What kind of trial is that? <laughs> Verse 21 said, It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul is doubling down on his statement and pointing out that this is really about his hope in the resurrection and in the resurrection in Jesus, not any civil crime. Right. This is beautiful when you consider that it is the spirit of Jesus who bound Paul to be here testifying before Felix and everyone else is listening. Yeah. Yeah. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. So this verse shows us several important things about Felix. He understood Paul's message after Paul reiterated that this whole trial is about the hope of the resurrection in Jesus. His response was to adjourn the proceedings and claim he was waiting for Lysias, although he'd already received Lysias' written testimony of Paul's innocence. Yeah. Although Felix is now fully aware that Paul is innocent, you will see that he has an ulterior motive for keeping him in prison. Yeah. However, this ulterior motive was used by Adonai to position Paul exactly where he wants him. Hallelujah. This will result in conviction being brought to Felix and those that will succeed him later in office. We need to keep moving, so we're going to take a slide that highlights how Felix may have become well acquainted with the way and then go to the next verse. Knowledge of the way. Having more exact knowledge, at Caesarea, Felix must have seen and heard something of Christianity. The conversion of Cornelius and his household and friends, men belonging to the dominant Roman power, the work of Philip the Evangelist, yeah. residing probably for some years at Caesarea, and working among Romans as well as Jews, must have given Felix <laughs> some knowledge of the way. Yeah. Look, the point you need to catch here is though through some means or another, Felix has become acquainted with the way. Uh -oh. But his acquaintance is about to become much more pointed as he interacts with Paul. Come on, yeah. Let's catch the next verse. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Now, many commentators believe that Felix allowing Paul's friends to attend to his needs is not an act of kindness as much as it is a practical move. Felix wants a bribe to release Paul, and the only way for that to happen is if a friend brings the money to Paul. Felix will soon find out that it is not Paul who is trapped in this situation, but instead, it is Felix who is trapped. He's a captive audience. Paul has no intention of depriving himself of eternal rewards to get out of jail. Let's get verse 24a. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. Let's take our next slide on Drusilla, so that we can complete the picture of this couple. Yeah. This is Drusilla. According to Josephus, Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Agrippa I. She had two sisters, Bernice and Mariamne. Drusilla was born about AD 36 and was married at about 15 years old to Azizus. King of Amisa. Felix fell in love with Drusilla and sent Simon, a Jewish sorcerer from Cyprus, to convince her to leave her husband. Bad man. Drusilla married Felix in AD 54. 
They had one son, Agrippa, who died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79 during Titus' reign. You already know about the Felix character. Drusilla is of mixed Jewish and Idumean descent. Her family's achievements include a long list of atrocities, like the murder of John the Baptizer, the murder of James the Apostle, and the attempted murder of Jesus Christ. To top it all off, she is married to Felix because she willingly left her own husband at the encouragement of a sorcerer. This adulterous couple both have familiarity with the way but in no way practice moral lives themselves. They are now going to willingly subject themselves to Paul's preaching. Let's see what happens. Yeah, let's see. Let's, let's tell him, let's go. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, oh, and the judgment to come. Oh my. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. Yeah. <laughs> you may leave. When I find it convenient, oh, I will send for you. Okay. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bride. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Any friends well, come see you today? Yeah. <laughs> we all love the tenacity of Paul. Yeah. I mean, his discourse with Felix and Drusilla stands in sharp contrast to the sycophant Tertullus who only spread flattery in the hopes of getting what he wanted. Yep. At another time, we would, have, we would love to explore the subjects of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come with you. But the truth is that this house is filled with teaching on those subjects every single week. The far more important issue at hand is our application of those topics to our daily lives. Amen. Yeah. Our next slide uh, comes from Unger's works, and it summarizes the event pretty well. It's titled, A Greedy Governor and a Profligate Princess. As a faithful preacher, Paul spoke to the Roman Libertine and the profligate Jewish princess. As he spoke of righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened. He should. But still nothing was decided. Felix said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. We are told why the governor shut his ears to conviction even neglected his official duty and kept his prisoner in cruel suspense. He was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Hence, he frequently sent for Paul and had many conversations with him, but his hopes were unfulfilled. He kept the apostle as a prisoner for two years. So, we're about to shift gears here for a minute. And as an honest confession, we included this slide just because we wanted to read Profligate Princess. <laughs> We're about to hit our last verse, and normally this would be the part that we close. We've diligently worked to time budget because we have practical applications yeah, for you yeah. that would be life-changing if you hear them. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Felix was a man acquainted with the way, but had no actual power over his own flesh. When presented with the way as embodied in Paul's deeds and teachings, it terrified Felix, but still he did not respond. Felix probably comforted himself thinking that Paul wasn't going anywhere and he could always repent later. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. 
However, this was not the case. Say, this was not the case. This was not the case. Felix's failure to respond to the Spirit causing conviction in his life set off a chain reaction in his own soul and in his circumstances. Now, as you're thinking about that, I want you to listen to this Proverbs. Proverbs 29, verse 4 through 6. By justice, a king gives a country stability. But one who is greedy for bribes tears it down. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. An evil man is snared by his own sin, but a righteous one can sing and be glad. Hallelujah. Felix was snared by his own sin, and Adonai provided a final opportunity for him to be freed just before it was too late for him. This body is filled with genuine believers that have a love for God's word. Amen? Amen. The unfortunate side effect of being acquainted with the way as you are is that we grow desensitized easily. A subtle snare begins to wrap around our necks because we hear regular preaching and then we make excuses for our own inaction. We acknowledge the truth of a subject like self-control, but then divorce that concept from the most basic areas of our own home. Then we proceed to comfort ourselves by saying that tomorrow we'll get it right. The truth is that the time to turn from evil and do good is the moment we recognize evil. We want to cut you free from the snares that seek to steal your call while you sit in a word-rich environment. Felix heard the regular preaching of Paul himself, and yet his constant internal delays led to his ultimate downfall. So as we prep for this, remember... He's hearing the Apostle Paul preach for two years every day. And it's striking his heart to the place where there's fear. But he just can't bring himself to really act upon it. Do not let your emotions in a service deceive you into thinking that you've made an actual change in your life because you feel fear. The consequence of ignoring conviction. Summoned to Rome. Meanwhile, the political state of Judea grew more embarrassing. It was during the two years of Paul's imprisonment that disturbances took place in the streets of Caesarea. Remember how the proverb just said that a king who accepts bribes destroys the kingdom? In the end, Felix was summoned to Rome, and the Jews followed him with their accusations. Thus, it was that he was anxious to do the Jews a favor and let Paul in prison. What the slide is letting you know is that the two-year time frame where he chose not to respond to what the Spirit was doing in his life and left Paul in prison is when everything started to crumble around him. And he had so mishandled his jurisdiction that he was seeking to find any favor with the Jews because they were going to bring accusations against him now. Again, the two years that Felix let Paul sit in prison was the time that Adonai began to strip everything from him. Eventually, his own right to rule. Now think about this though. The two years were a gift from God. 
They were in constant opportunity to turn in repentance, things showing him he must change. Felix could have just been struck dead like Herod, but he wasn't. God allowed him to live with Paul there speaking to him every day. Despite this grace extended to him, he dug in his heels and became even more ungodly. Now hear this. It's difficult to quantify the cost of ignoring conviction the first time that you feel it. Because ignoring it deadens your awareness of the impending judgment. You actually get less and less perceptive. So act today. Now is the time to move. See, if we wait for a convenient time to repent, you'll find that time passes you by and you've lost those moments to repent. Or if you're waiting for the right time to get everything together, or when it feels good to me to repent, you'll find that you'll just be wasting the time God has already given you to repent. And we're going to take one last passage on the subject and then switch gears to what has been produced in Paul. Felix and Paul, two ends of the spectrum. John 16, 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, the ruler of this world is already condemned. And his final judgment is awaiting him at the end of a thousand years. Our verdict is still out. Praise God. We are experiencing mounting pressure as a body from attacks without and internal attacks, uh, internal attacks within in our own thoughts and sinful nature that is not as dead as we would like it to be. Now is the time to make sure that in all respects, we become a model of a righteous life by always repenting. Every moment conviction falls. Amen. Have you guys received the warning from Felix's life? Yeah. Did you yeah. see that? Have you engaged with it? Now is the time, if there is conviction, to repent. Now is the time. Now that we've addressed that, let's consider the inspiring example that Paul's life is for us at this moment. Hebrews 11.32 says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, Enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, Hallelujah. became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Wow. This is, of course, the Hall of Fame that all of you are so familiar with. But engage with Paul's current predicament in the chapter for a moment. Yeah. Guys, Right here, Paul knows that he's innocent. He knows that he hasn't done anything wrong. He also knows that there are nations that he wants to preach to that are outside of this prison, and he's trapped in it. They're not in Caesarea. He's not in the place that he knows that he is going to go to, and he can't get out. He's likely concerned for the sons of the gospel that he's raised up. We're talking about the Timothys and the Tituses, etc. They're alone because he is not currently able to travel and help them. 
Guys, Paul has just deposited a very large offering in Jerusalem. You catching our drift when we say that? Like he just brought a large sum of money to Jerusalem. From all over the world they collected yeah. and brought it to Jerusalem. Wouldn't it be kind of tempting to be like, hey, James, uh, I just dropped an offering off. It was a pretty large sum of money. Can we take a small portion of that and bring it back and give it to Felix and maybe I can get on with my life and my ministry calling, right? I, I still got to go to Rome after all. God called me to Rome. I can't accomplish it if I'm sitting here in this church. My, well, I mean this prison. My you hear me, those of you who believe you're called somewhere? That's my it. ministry is being held back because of my current state. Right? Wow. Wrong. Let's go on to uh, verse 35 of Hebrews 11. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Come on. Others suffered mockings and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Paul, Paul had every ability and right to be released, except he did not have the right from Adonai. He refused to be released even though it was in his power to be free because he trusted in the sovereignty of Adonai. This is a model for us in unjust or difficult circumstances and any area that we feel like our circumstances are a hindrance. Amen. Your circumstances are actually your dressing room for the first resurrection. Come on. Yeah. We encourage you to learn to take pride in what you, surf, uh, what you suffer and do it cheerfully. Amen. Don't shrink back from it and in doing so leave yourself naked and ashamed for the age to come. Come on. Paul will be addressed like a king in eternity yeah. even though he is bruised, unshaven, and a captive right now. Because he refused to take himself out of Adonai's will for the sake of his own comfort. By the way, this is the time period when many believe that he may have written several of his epistles that have blessed the generations of sons. Hallelujah! Twelve days of trial and testimony are one kind of challenge. And two years of prayer and writing to sons coming after you that you are concerned for is another. But in God's grace, Paul did, did both very well. Come on. Oh. Just in case you missed it, the Hebrews Hall of Fame, Jephthah, Barak, David, you know what Paul just made himself on the list by refusing to be released from in prison? By having the ability to set himself free, but choosing to endure in his circumstances with joy? Paul is now, not at any other point in his time, now, a man who fits the list of the Hebrews 11 Paul of fame. Don't tell me that your current trial is not achieving something for you in Come eternity. These guys said it. It is our dressing room for eternity. We want every one of you to be clothed like a king in the same way that Paul was. That only comes from refusing to shirk the difficulty now so that you can be transformed into what he's always called you to be. Pastor, please take over. I hope you can feel the solemnity of what God is trying to speak to us.
In my general nature, I hope to encourage people all that I can. It's what I long to do. Tonight, I'm not quite as concerned about encouraging you as I am about challenging you. God is trying to cause us to gird up the loins of our own minds. To cut away the superfluous, the extra, the things that you think are important but just aren't. So that you will have a clarity in your own soul, in your own spirit about accomplishing what God has for us. Uh, I can't quite see who's in the back. So Sound Booth, would you put up the slide that had Paul's creed? about worship. There we go. I want to tie something in with you here and then we're going to read one passage of scripture. And I can sense there's just genuine wrestling that is going on and if it's not going on in hearts, it needs to go on. Paul's creed was I worship God. It's not about his feelings, it's not about his thoughts, it's about his actions that he is now teaching you about. As one who's been called out of slavery to sin and a corrupt religious system, just like our fathers were called out of Egypt and into the way of Adonai. Is anybody like me and you can feel a kindred spirit to what that is saying? Is anybody like me and you want to be able to do that better in your own life? I believe not just a thought. I believe in the word of God just as Father Abraham did. How many of you like the first part of that sentence, but that last part when you get there is really a, causes your heart to clench up? Yeah. yeah, I believe in the word of God just like Father Abraham did. Of the same faith, of equal faith, even with Father Abraham. This has resulted in credited righteousness and a covenant from God, a covenant that God will be faithful to bring to its ultimate completion, even in our own inadequacy. Paul goes on to say, I have hope in the return of Messiah, who will raise the righteous to reign with him at the beginning of the thousand years, and who will raise the wicked for destruction at the end of the thousand years. This is Paul's beginning salvo in his daily interaction for a two-year preaching to Felix. This is the beginning. Paul did not change his witness regardless of who was standing in front of him. He didn't adjust it when he was in front of the Jews, and he surely didn't adjust it in front of Felix. These are the things that he covers in his first formal defense with Felix. He didn't wait till Felix was prepared. It wasn't his last time speaking to him. It was the initial volley of sharing what he was really all about. Church, we have to grow in not allowing our circumstances to change the way that we address the Word of God. Well, I feel like it's this way today, but this circumstance changed. So now what I said God told me to do, it must have, I'm just going to completely leave that and do something different. We have to grow. Somebody say, I have to grow. I have to grow. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 as we get ready to close. Sound booth, just go ahead and put the whole chapter up there for you so I can just call out whatever verse I want. By the way, who's the letter to 2 Peter? Who's it written to? 
hatred to Jews. How about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1? Let me help you. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Peter is writing to people that it, it matters to him that they get. Look at verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact. Somebody say one fact. One fact. Beloved, that the, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. I'm just going to make this part short. Go back and listen to this study again and make sure that that entire middle section that we had about one day and an eschatological framework for all of the history and the future of mankind, that you take some more time. These men did a great job of presenting it. And I don't want it to go over your head. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. Doesn't that already help you to understand what God is doing? Why won't He just do this? No, He is showing kindness. He is patient toward all of the rest of the world. No, He is patient towards you. Some of you questioning about your timing and where you're supposed to be and where you are now. Why is God moving so slowly? Because He's being patient with you. You are not. You are not being patient with the Lord. He is being patient with you to allow yourself to get right where you need to get. Oh, I'm ready though, Pastor. If you were ready, you'd be where you're supposed to be. You are here because He is patient with you so that you will get yourself right with Him in a daily fashion. Not crying out for your circumstances to change, but having such joy, the harder it is. Praise God, this is my dress rehearsal for the resurrection. This is me getting what I need. Not wishing that any should perish. Who is he talking to again? Beloved. You, the beloved. He didn't just change gears there and start talking about the world. He's talking about us. But that all should reach repentance, including us here in this room. Look at verse 11. I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrap this up. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? I wonder which day he's speaking of. You know exactly which day he's speaking of. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Come on. What kind of people ought you to be? Come on. He tells you exactly what kind of people you ought to be. Since you're waiting for these things, 
You're not waiting on God. You're waiting on the fullness of what He is going to do. He is waiting and being patient with you. Then you be diligent to be found without any spot, without any blemish, and perfectly in shalom with God your Father. Stand to your feet with me. Raise your hands before God. Light a fire within your own heart as we begin to pray together. Mighty God, we hear the call of the kind of people that we must be. Lord, those who worship you, those who believe your word as Father Abraham did, those who have hope in the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked for judgment. God, may you cause a diligence to rise in this house. A clarity, a razor-like edge for each man and each woman in this room that we can gird the loins of our mind and be found diligent without spot, blemish, and have perfect shalom with you. God, may you speak to each and every man and each and every woman in this house. God, we are hearing and we are sensing what you're doing in our people as a whole, God. Lord, we are girding up the loins of our own mind, being sober-minded and grabbing onto the hope of that resurrection that you have. Lord, we honor you and we leave this place with both a joy of what you are doing and a sobriety that you are the one being patient with us and that you will help us to rise and walk in every way, first to do and then to teach, Lord, your ways to all people in all of the earth. Lord, we honor you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.